One of the things that I find interesting is learning about people's uh, recurrent nightmares. And I wonder what nightmares you have recurringly. I know one of them for me, and I think for many people, is a nightmare of paralysis. So somebody is chasing you, and maybe they've got a gun, or maybe they have a knife, and they're trying to run you down, and you try to run away. And so you have this moment when your legs just need to get going, and you need to run away. And maybe you want to scream for help. But your whole body is paralyzed, and so your legs won't work, and your vocal cords won't work, and so you're just paralyzed. Is that a a nightmare that any of you have had before? I have that one repeatedly. Go. Yeah, I think I think y'all got most of that. But is that a nightmare you have? I mean, I have another nightmare about always being late, uh, like, or um, I'll be in a a college core or my classes in college, and I don't realize some of the assignments, and I'm behind. I don't know what your recurring nightmares are. But one of them, um, finally, is this nightmare of exposure. Have you ever had a nightmare where you're in a group of people, and maybe they're your friends, and maybe you're at a party, or maybe you are in a work setting, and you're with your boss, and you're with your colleagues, and everybody is around, and it's your moment, and you're on, and then suddenly you realize you're naked. Have you ever had that? You know, you're looking around and everybody else has clothes on. And you go, oh my gosh, I'm, I don't have any clothes on. And maybe I should have clothes on. <laughs> have you ever had... Everybody has a naked nightmare, right? <laughs> I don't know. I do. Um, <laughs> but the whole thing is our fear of exposure. And exposure is a big deal. It brings back to me memories of middle school when all the other kids, like, pushed their socks down, and I had my socks pulled up, and I realized I was the odd man out. There are these moments that we have in life, and we realize that we're out of step or that we're, like, glaringly inadequate in some way. It's all about this thing of exposure. So we're in the season of Lent, and... We're doing practices. We're encouraging you for devotional reading and Bible reading and prayer and practices of fasting and also of confession. And the difficulty with confession is the exposure. So one thing with confession is uh, we need only confess to God to be forgiven for our sins. But sometimes it's helpful to confess to another flesh and blood person. It's helpful for you to confess your sins to somebody and for them not to be shocked. And for somebody uh, to be able to say out into the clear air, in Christ you are forgiven. That can be very, very healing uh, in community if you experience something like that. But the problem is we don't want to be found out. And so we have trouble confessing. And maybe we, we even have trouble, we press down what is even true about ourselves from ourselves because we don't want to admit the reality of our lives to anybody. And so this is the challenge of confession. But what we're going to learn today is 
that the cross makes confession safe. The truth is that nothing uh, will open us to uh, just the offense of our sin, to grieve and mourn, as is the assurance that we're forgiven. And the cross gives us that assurance. And so today we want to learn how the cross makes confession safe. So our series is life-changing, and we've been encouraging you uh, just to read ahead, and some of you are studying in your home groups some of these passages. We're following with the lectionary gospel readings with churches around the globe in reading selections from John. And so today we get to the woman caught in adultery. We're pretty certain this text was not in the earliest manuscripts of John's gospels, but as many scholars say, it's consistent with John's teaching and it's a text that can be trusted. So I'll invite you to read, turn to John chapter 7, beginning at verse 53. And have your worship guides or your Bibles open on your lap because we'll be referring to them. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the meeting broke up and everybody went home. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that could be used against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. The word of the Lord. So I hope you got the scene. Jesus is in the temple courts. And he sat down uh, at dawn to teach to anyone who wanted to come and assemble. And suddenly, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they bring in, probably dragging by the arm, a woman that they said was caught in the very act of adultery. So, this sounds like to me, my worst nightmare or your worst nightmare. It's this nightmare of exposure. So, what's... The problem with exposure, I think this text is going to teach us it's the punishment. So first, it's the internal or psychic or emotional punishment. Verse 3, it says that they made her stand before the group. Literally, the words are they made her stand in the midst. One version said she had to stand in the center of the courtyard. All eyes were on her. 
And the fact that she was caught in the very act of adultery leads some scholars to conclude that maybe she was in the state of partial undress. So you've got to understand, this is, uh, this is just the height of vulnerability, the height of exposure. And I feel like in, in situations like this, it helps us understand when we're exposed, a lot of it is that we're all alone. The sense of it is she's all alone and she's exposed and she's helpless. And so what happens, it's the shame and the humiliation, and it was profound. And more than likely, this woman wanted to poke the crowd's eyes out, or she wanted to disappear by crawling into a hole. This is how shame operates. And we've all experienced having something discovered about us, something become known that we didn't want to become known. And so we hide, and we uh, try to... um, Govern and sort of constrain um, how it is that people see us. But we all know the wince or the jolt of shame. On a larger scale, sometimes I wonder what it would be like to have um, my, the secret things about me splashed across the morning news. What would that be like for you if everything about you and especially the unseemly things about you were splashed across the morning news? This was a little bit the way it was, and this was the internal pain. It was the pain of shame. And this is why we hesitate to confess, because why would we enter into this kind of exposure and this kind of pain? I think some of us think about it this way. Well, second, it's not only the internal punishment, but the external punishment. In this case, verse 4, teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. So adultery was a capital offense in the Jewish setting. Leviticus 20.10 is a statement of the Jewish law, which is very clear. It says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. And by the way, it raises a question of where was the man in this situation, which has led some scholars to conclude that maybe this was a setup. We know that they were trying to trap Jesus, but maybe the man was involved in the setup and it was only the woman who was, who was sort of a pawn. But here's the thing. We often, the, the external punishment can be severe. You know, for us today, we might face a jail sentence or a monetary fine or a sanction, or we might face the loss of our job or the loss of a relationship like a friend or a family member if we're found out. And so this is why we've worked so hard to hide and to tamp down the truth of who we are. So the teachers of the law, um, they had found out this woman and they were planning to execute the plan for punishment. And maybe there were people with stones in hand and arms cocked, ready to hurl them at the woman in the center of the circle. So again, no wonder we have trouble confessing our sins to God or to anybody else. It's the punishment. It's the exposure is our worst nightmare. And we have strategies to help us avoid being caught in sin. So let me just list a few. For example, instead of confession, we would prefer to minimize our sin. This is when we say, I did it, but it wasn't so bad. Everybody else is doing it. I did it, but it's not so bad that I did it. It's really a small thing. 
or we rationalize sin. I did it, but I had good reason to do it. And let me tell you why I had good reason to do it. Or we deny sin. Denial is, I don't know how that happened. It wasn't even me that must have done that. I wasn't in my right mind. Or we pretend and fake. We say, uh, I didn't do that, even though everybody knows you did. But I'll defend my innocence until the end. I'll pretend that I didn't do something that I did. And we see that, I think, publicly in the news all the time. And then especially we blame shift. This is, uh, maybe I did something, but he made me do it or she made me do it. And I wouldn't have done it if he or she hadn't done something that they shouldn't have done. So these are all the strategies that we employ, and they're all forms of hiding. And the reason is the punishment. And the woman caught in adultery so far has experienced how punishing the exposure of her sin is. But what she's about to experience is the radical nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's just now take the turn in the story because now Jesus gets involved. So what happens next? So the religious leaders have hauled this woman into the circle, and they're trying to trap him. They had heard that maybe Jesus was a friend of sinners and says to stone her. They're trying to trap Jesus. So what does he do next? So famously, he stoops. And I love the word. So he stoops, and he bends down, and he begins writing in the dust. And nobody knows what he began to write. But verse 7, the crowd kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped and wrote in the dust again. So what I find compelling, some people say that he was maybe writing sins that he knew the crowd or the religious leaders had committed, or he was writing others of the Old Testament law. But what I find compelling is that when he stoops down, do you notice what happens? Now, you know I'm not doing anything in the rug, but what if I was doing something? You'd be sort of craning your neck up to see what I was doing. And what's happening is the tension is being drawn away from the woman in her shame over here. So what I find compelling is the covering In the garden, in Genesis 3, after their sin, Adam and Eve were dealing with what? They were dealing with exposure. So before original sin, before they sinned, it says that they were naked and unashamed. But after they sinned, it said they were uh, naked and ashamed. And so they sought to cover. And there are various ways that happened. But the first was they tried to cover themselves Uh, with the fig leaves. So this is verse 7 of chapter 3. Then the eyes of both of them were opened after they sinned, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So do you see this theme of covering, of covering? What do we need when we're exposed in our vulnerability, in our sin and shame? We need covering. And so the loincloths were Adam and Eve's self-covering strategy. This was the earliest version of minimizing, rationalizing, denying, pretending, and blaming someone else for sin. It was a self-atoning, self-covering strategy. But it didn't work. 
And so 14 verses later in Genesis 3.21, it says, okay, the Lord God has to do for them what they can't do for themselves. And it says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And one writer says, this clothing sort of dropped to their ankles. It was full covering. It was fully sufficient. It was all that they needed. So again, first Adam and Eve try their self-covering strategy with the fig leaves. Then the Lord God covers them. And that was the sufficient covering. And when the Lord God covered them, the coverings required blood sacrifice on the part of the animals. So back to John 8, Jesus says to the crowd, okay, if any of you haven't sinned, you can throw a stone. Verse 9, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, the eldest first. And this is one of the beautiful qualities of growing older. If you grow wiser when you grow older, you begin to know yourself. And so the oldest slipped away first. Then this, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. So the circle, again, we're in the circle, and the circle represents the place of shame and sin. Um, This is the sort of shame place. It's the place where sinners stand. And at first, the woman is in the circle. She's the one who created the circle. But next, the surprise twist is her accusers found themselves in the circle. And Jesus has just put them there. If any of you hasn't sinned, you cast the first stone. So now they're all in the circle. And I think this is helpful because I think we think we put a lot of mental energy into this thing of trying to distinguish ourselves from our neighbors. And we think, well, maybe our sin is not as bad as someone else's sin. And so we try to see how we stack up. But the Christian gospel says no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. There is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is Romans 3. So the point is all of us, all of humanity ends up in the circle. So first the woman is in the circle then her accusers are in the circle, and we're in the circle with her, and then fin- with them. And then finally, the unexpected final scene is Jesus himself is in the circle, taking their sin and our sin on himself. So you see in verse 9, Jesus is now left in the middle. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so finishing up our John 8 8 passage, it says, Then Jesus stood again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? And she says, No, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So do you see what's happening here? This woman who was fully exposed, all alone, helpless in her sin and shame, ready to receive the full bore of the punishment due her because of her sin. Here she is now, and Jesus has covered her. And so we said, recall from John 3, for God so loved the world. What was the point. So it's always a preview of the cross. 
It's always a preview of the cross in John. And we said in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that passage finishes up, but for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so here it is. Jesus is previewing the cross once again, the grand enterprise, the great event of John's gospel, the shining light in our graphic that's coming in through the doorway. And so how is it happening here? We've been learning week by week. The cross is like a multifaceted prism of God's grace. So what is the side of the prism we see here? Well, we read in the gospel accounts that the cross, um, the gospel writers don't feature the physical pain of the cross so much as they feature the exposure. Matthew's account said, Pilate's soldiers put a kingly robe on Jesus and a crown of thorns and then knelt before him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. They spit on him. Other versions say they spit in his face. So the point of the cross in the ancient world was the shame and humiliation. Yes, it was torturous. But the thing that the gospel writers capture is the shame and, same, shame and humiliation. So victims of crosses were put on public roadways. And the crosses were, the victims were down low toward the road where people could see the victims and they could mock them. And the victims were naked. So here's the point. We all need covering. We can't self-cover. We all need a covering from outside, outside of ourselves. We all need God above to cover our sin and shame. See, the animal skins in Genesis 3 were never enough. Jesus himself would become the true blood sacrifice required to atone for sin. He looked down on us, vulnerable and alone, helpless in our sin, straining and trying again and again in our self-covering strategies. And he said, I will cover you. And so as Isaiah 61.10 says, For God has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And so you have the picture um, in the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, what happens? The prodigal son returns, and what does a father do? He, 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 he puts a robe on his back. He clothes him. He covers his shame. And the picture for us is in our sin and shame, when we come to Christ in faith, is to picture him putting that royal robe around our shoulders and covering our sin and shame. It's the robe and it's the clothing of his righteousness. And we receive it by faith. So people will sometimes say to me, um, you know, why the cross? Couldn't Jesus have just forgiven the woman? Couldn't he have just snapped his fingers? Couldn't he have just said, I forgive you? So here's the thing. We know that we want a world that is both just and merciful. A world that is just merciful, uh, somebody has to pay for the tablecloth, right? Somebody always has to pay if there's going to be justice. 
You don't get the new tablecloth unless somebody pays for the sin of the child, right? So you play that out in almost every circumstance. In a world of justice, someone has to pay. And so what Jesus is working out, you can't just, you, you can't just um, snap your fingers and avoid the punishment in fact, Jesus never says to the woman, uh, you shouldn't be stoned. He just says to her, it won't be you who will be stoned. Do you understand? And so what happens here is Jesus is bearing not just the sin of us and all humanity, but also our shame. And he's making it safe to confess our sin again. So friends, um, during Lent... The cross invites us to give up our self-covering, self-atoning strategies. And this takes a lot of courage. And it's a cross-current. Because everything in us and everybody around us is doing differently. Everybody else confesses their good points and hides their bad points. The unique invitation of the Christian gospel is to confess your sins and to be forgiven, and to be freed, and to be called to a new way of life. So the cross invites us to give up our self-covering strategies, and to let our consciences be stricken, and to mourn our sin openly. So Lent helps us understand what it means to be a Christian. A lot of us think to be a Christian means to shape up. But first and foremost, what it means to be a Christian is the invitation to come clean with what is true about ourselves. So we invite the Holy Spirit to search us and we see if there's any unclean way in us and we depend on the one who took the punishment we deserve so we could be clothed in heavenly garments. So the irony of the woman's story is forgiveness frees her to repent It doesn't come until the end, and that's because the doorway into Christianity is not morality. It's not improved morality. The doorway into Christianity is always forgiveness, and morality is always the caboose. So Jesus says to her, I forgive you. I cover you. Now go and sin no more. The grace of God calls her to a new way of life. It's repentance, metanoia, which literally means a change of mind. Grace frees us to go and live a new way of life. And that's also part of Lent. So during Lent, we're inviting you to daily practices. Again, of daily devotional reading, prayer, confession, and fasting. And I want to continue to call you to fast on Wednesdays. Now, fasting... uh, With fasting, we starve the flesh and feed the spirit. And some of you have never tried this much. And sometimes when we try a spiritual discipline, it uh, involves some suffering. And I think spiritual disciplines can be cumulative. We build new spiritual muscles. And so sometimes it goes better the second or third time. But the reason that we need spiritual disciplines, especially during Lent, is that our lives have lost their shape. See, we are formed by our habits. And the spiritual disciplines are not a way by which we earn our way into the favor of God, but they are efforts 
by which we grow in the likeness of Christ. So the spiritual disciplines themselves don't change us into the likeness of Christ, but they provide context in which the Spirit of God can do that great work. So I'm encouraging you um, to fast with me on Wednesdays, and maybe you'd come at lunchtime and we'd make the back area a place of prayer together. And I'm also encouraging you to daily confession and to that deep clean, to get at that grime, to pull the dishes out of the cupboard and get at that grime uh, that, is, that is the invitation of Lent. So I want to continue to call us bravely to prayers of confession. And when we take the risk to confess our sins to holy God or to a friend, we are showing that we do not cover ourselves, but we are clothed by the righteousness of Christ through faith. And one last thought. During Lent, when you go to dress yourself in the morning and you pull on your sweater and you put your arm into your shirt sleeve, you pull something over your head, you put it on, I want you to just say quietly in your head, I'm clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I'm clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So we bravely go out into the world with a different sense of things. We bravely go out unafraid because of the gift of Christ in our lives. So we're, uh, I want to close now with an old prayer of confession. I want to invite you. This is a prayer from the Puritans from the 17th century in New England. And I'll warn you that it has some old language. But I love the old language because I think the old language kind of jars us. And I think we need to be jilted by the old language, because some of it is, you know, kind of gets to us. So this is a prayer from the compendium of prayers called the Valley of Vision. And I want to invite you uh, to stand, sit, or kneel as we pray this prayer in unison. So again, you can find the little slip of paper in your worship guide. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, give me a deeper repentance, a horror of sin, a dread of its approach. Help me chastely to flee it and jealously to resolve that my heart shall be thine alone. Give me a deeper trust that I may lose myself to find myself in thee, the ground of my rest, the spring of my being. Give me a deeper knowledge of thyself as Savior, Master, Lord, and King. Give me deeper power in private prayer, more sweetness in thy word more steadfast grip on its truth. Give me deeper holiness in speech, thought, action, and let me not seek moral virtue apart from Thee. Plow deep in me, great Lord, heavenly husbandman, that my being may be a tilled field, the roots of grace spreading far and wide, until Thou alone art seen in me, Thy beauty, golden like summer harvest, thy fruitfulness as autumn plenty. I have no master but thee, 
No law but thy will, no delight but thyself, no wealth but that thou givest, no good but that thou blessest, no peace but that thou bestowest. I am nothing but that thou makest me, I have nothing but that I receive from thee. I can be nothing but that grace adorns me. Quarry me deep, dear Lord, and then fill me to overflowing with living water. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.